we don't build buildings like we used to. We don't use the materials. We don't uh, employ the same craftsmanship. Uh, we don't um, create the, be- the beauty of historic architecture uh, that we used to. I mean, yes, it can be done if money is no object, but it's rarely done. And it rarely makes economic sense to uh, build the way we were building, say, in the 1890s when a lot of Germantown was built, you know, the Victorian era. Um, so if we're going to rebuild this city with two-thirds of the buildings built before World War II, we're going to have to find ways to incentivize and encourage the restoration of uh, the buildings we already have. It also is in, it makes environmental sense because there's a lot of energy that went into making the building materials that make up these buildings, that, you know, human energy that was used to construct them. And so anytime we just knock them down and shove them into a landfill, it's a huge waste. And uh, so there are many reasons why preservation is important. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, the program that shines a spotlight on positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization in the city of brotherly love. Coming to you live from the G-Town Radio Studio on Maplewood Mall in Germantown. Here's your host, Alina DeLisser. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show. Our guest today is a man who knows a lot about the history of real estate in Philadelphia. His name is Paul Steinke, and he's the executive director of the Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia, a membership-based organization whose mission is to promote the appreciation, adaptive reuse, and development of the Philadelphia region's historic buildings, communities, and landscapes. Before he was in charge of the Alliance, Paul was the general manager of the Reading Terminal Market for 13 years, where he oversaw numerous improvements in the facility and tenant mix. In fact, under his leadership, the market was recognized by the American Planning Association as one of the great places in America. Earlier in his career, Paul was the executive director of the University City District, a neighborhood improvement organization that has been central to the revitalization of West Philly and He was also the finance director of the Center City District, Philadelphia's downtown improvement agency. So on today's show, Paul is going to tell us more about the mission of the Preservation Alliance and how respecting and protecting our architectural past can create economic growth for our future. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Alina. Uh, Happy to be here. Great to have you here today. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about where your love of historic uh, buildings came from. Well, it's hard to say exactly, but uh, from a very young age, I was intrigued by my surroundings and really kind of uh, turned on by exploring my first, my own neighborhood where I grew up. I grew up in the Burhome section of Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, And then as I got a little older, I would uh, plead with my father to drive me to other neighborhoods and take me to see other places in the city where I'd heard of, or um, I knew somebody who was from there, and uh, more often than not, on a Saturday when I was a kid, uh, we'd get in the car and go driving. My dad, I guess I get it from my dad, because my dad loved it too, and he really enjoyed uh, exploring the city, getting to know the city, and I think I really picked it up from him. He, he himself grew up kind of a working class kid in the Port Richmond section of Philadelphia, and would tell me about you know taking the, tro- the 60 trolley on Allegheny Avenue and walking down to Connie Mack Stadium to go to a Phillies game or even a Philadelphia Athletics game. Uh, and so that really kind of, I think, sparked my interest in history and uh, the history in particular of Philadelphia and its neighborhoods. That's great. So how would you describe your current role? Are you a guardian or a kind of architectural cop? 
Well, I guess you could say it's uh, some of both. You know, uh, we're a guardian in that we stand up for historic buildings when they're threatened, and we advocate for historic buildings uh, to be protected uh, so they're not threatened. Uh, but we're also a bit of a cop, you know. Um, sometimes somebody on my staff, uh, Patrick Grassi, our advocacy director, sa- calls it the preservation ambulance. People, it's like calling 911. A building is threatened and we get a phone call. And uh, we have to evaluate the situation, decide if we can make a difference, and if so, how we can make a difference, where the point of contact and leverage might be. Uh, and so in that sense, we are... I think a bit of a detective, an, an architectural detective, and uh, sort of the preservation cop. So explain where the Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia fits in the ecosystem of historical preservation entities in Philadelphia and in the region. How is it different from the Philadelphia Historic Commission? The Preservation Alliance is a member-supported, not-for-profit advocacy organization. We were started in 1996 although we were built out of two predecessor organizations that came together in 96 to form the Preservation Alliance. That's why it's called an alliance, because it was two previous organizations that merged. Uh, And so we serve in an advocacy role, uh, whereas the Philadelphia Historical Commission, some of your listeners may be familiar with, but a lot may not be. Uh, It's a small agency within city government, Uh, It was created by and in the Philadelphia City Charter in 1951 uh, to be um, uh, an official guardian of Philadelphia's historic architecture. And so they have a role that's very different. They have legal powers that we do not. uh, And, of course, they're supported by uh, the city budget and, therefore, the taxpayers, whereas we're supported by the generosity of our members and donors. So um, how does the Preservation Alliance work with developers and property owners? Um, Who would you say is the Alliance's primary constituency? Our primary constituency um, are our members. We have about 750 members, and I'm pleased to say that uh, number has been growing. Uh, And the majority of them are individuals who uh, live in neighborhoods, mostly in the city of Philadelphia. We have some suburban uh, membership as well. Uh, And they're people who share our love for historic architecture and streetscapes uh, and choose to support us uh, with their membership. We also have a number of business members. Some of them are developers. Some of them are law firms. Some of them are architecture firms. Some of them are professionals who are in uh, the building and construction business. It's a relatively, it's a smaller proportion of our membership, but a very important one. Uh, to what we do. So, um, you know, going back to your uh, professional history, in 2015, you ran for city council here in Philadelphia. Yes. And although you didn't win, you were quite open about talking about the impact the experience has had on you and the way it increased your appreciation for the city. What did you learn from your run for city council that has helped you in your current role? What the city council run did uh, for me, among many things, was it got me out across the entire city. I was running for an at-large seat, uh, which means that uh, if I had won, I would have represented the entire city. And so I had to campaign across the entire city. And it's a huge city. It's 138 square miles. Um, It uh, has incredible diversity of neighborhoods and people and architectural styles And it was really a thrill to get out into corners of the city that I barely had been to before. And also to see those neighborhoods through the eyes of the people who live there. And it really expanded my horizons uh, with regard to how I view the city, my understanding of the city, and my understanding of its people. And I think that's been uh, really important to the role I'm playing now with the Preservation Alliance, which is also a citywide and to some extent region-wide uh, role in the built environment. So Philadelphia is second only to New York City for the number of properties built before 1900, but yet fewer than 5% of those properties have historic preservation status. Why has Philadelphia lagged on this front, and what are some of the challenges the city faces um, as it relates to solving 
the issue of historic preservation? Well, the numbers are actually a bit worse than that. Oh. It's less than 3% of the structures within the city that are protected on the city's historic register, which means that they're registered with the Historical Commission on the Philadelphia Register of Historic Places. And once a, a building is listed on that register, it cannot be altered or torn down without the permission of the Historical Commission. So again, less than 3% of the buildings in our city are protected in that way, which means, in theory, uh, something like 97% of the buildings in the city could be demolished just by the property owner applying for a demolition permit. And that's really scary. You know, I have uh, moments when I'm uh, on a septa trolley going home. I live in um, University City, and I'm on a street like Chester Avenue, and I'm looking at these 19th century stone front twin houses, and I think, wow, somebody could come along, empty them out, apply for a demolition permit, and build something else there. And how sad that would be for that community if that were to happen. And that is repeated all across the city, including right here in Germantown, where there are many b individual buildings that are listed on the historic register. But Germantown as a neighborhood is not a Philadelphia historic district, uh, which would protect an entire zone of the neighborhood. And for a neighborhood like Germantown, you know, I like to say that it's the most historic neighborhood in the city outside of Center City and Old City in particular, yet the historic protections in this particular neighborhood of Germantown are really weak. And so a lot of uh, buildings are vulnerable to demolition. And that's become more of an issue in the last decade as development pressures have increased in many neighborhoods, including recently we're seeing signs of it here in Germantown. So, yeah, signs of it here in Germantown, um, also in, in West Philly, uh, University City, particularly around Drexel and around uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, so what does it take? Does it take the uh, community groups pushing for those de designations? Or, I mean, what's, what's the proper protocol or proper process? And is it a situation where and sometimes people don't necessarily want to fight for that designation because it could inhibit Right. Redevelopment. Well, in answering, and that's often something that we hear, um, and I want to sort of push back on that notion a little bit with you. Um, and I'd like to start to answer that question by sort of addressing why is preservation important to uh, consider as a value in our city? And it's because uh, we are a th over 300-year-old city, founded in 1682, one of the oldest cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and as you were saying earlier, about two-thirds of the buildings in the city were built before World War II, which means we have a lot of old buildings. Um, we don't build buildings like we used to. We don't use the materials. We don't uh, employ the same craftsmanship. Uh, we don't um, create the, be the beauty of historic architecture uh, that we used to. I mean, yes, it can be done if money is no object, but it's rarely done. And it rarely makes economic sense to uh, build the way we were building, say, in the 1890s when a lot of Germantown was built, you know, the Victorian era. Um, so if we're going to rebuild this city with two-thirds of the buildings built before World War II, we're going to have to find ways to incentivize and encourage the restoration of uh, the buildings we already have. In addition to that being sort of almost common sense, because we're not going to tear down the whole city and rebuild it, nor would anyone want to, uh, it also is in, it makes environmental sense because there's a lot of energy that went into making the building materials that make up these buildings, that, you know, human energy that was used to construct them. And so anytime... We just knock them down and shove them into a landfill. It's a huge waste. Uh, and uh, so th there are many reasons why preservation is important. So to answer your question, why or uh, what's the best way to get protections for these buildings, uh, it often originates with community members. It often originates with uh, people, some of whom are members of the Preservation Alliance, 
who recognize a threat and understand the importance of a building or a neighborhood and go to their city council person, uh, go to their community organization and say, let's take steps to get these protected on the Philadelphia Register of Historic Places. Um, and so a lot of it originates with that kind of energy. Some of it originates also with uh, actions by advocates like the Preservation Alliance and the many other individual actors around the city, whether it's uh, historical societies uh, like University City Historical Society, um, the Northeast Philadelphia History Network, um, groups here in Germantown and Northwest Philadelphia who are our partners and we work together to get buildings protected. So I know earlier this year, the Philadelphia Historic Task Force released a report. Um, can you kind of uh, walk us through what some of the highlights were of that uh, March 2019 report? Sure. Um, Mayor Kenny campaigned for office in part on a platform of paying more attention and investing more in historic preservation in the city. Uh, he was elected uh, in 2015, took office in 2016, and shortly after that happened, uh, we had the Jewelers Row crisis, where a suburban developer of luxury housing came in and proposed to build a 25- or 30-story luxury condominium, condominium tower uh, right in the middle of our Jewelers Row. And explain to anybody who's listening what the context is of Jewelers Row. Jewelers Row is uh, regionally quite famous. Uh, I got... My, I and my husband got our wedding rings there in 2015. Uh, many, many couples uh, have done that. Um, it is the oldest diamond district in the United States. It is one of the largest. I think New York is indisputably the largest, but our Jewelers Row in Philadelphia is right up there. And so it's been around for over 100 years. Probably 125 years is when jewelers really started to take root in that neighborhood. And they uh, are housed in buildings that go back as far as 1800. Uh, the bulk of them were built between 1850 and 1900. And together they form a beautiful streetscape of three and four story buildings uh, on a brick street. Uh, and it's really charming. In now, Center City. Mm -hmm. It's in Center City. It's, it's a block from Independence Hall. It's a block from Washington Square. It's this little, tiny survivor of a low-rise commercial district. And really, it's a maker's district. It's people who are making things. It's not just the retailing of, of jewelry, but people are making jewelry. People are repairing jewelry. People are cutting diamonds. The range of trades and sub-trades that go on in that neighborhood is really incredible. And it's the kind of thing that cities have been trying to cultivate and grow. Let's bring makers into the city who work with their hands and, and create things. And we have one of the oldest ones of its kind right there in Jewelers Row. So in comes this uh, suburban developer and says, we're going to plop down a 30-story condominium tower, knocking down um, half a dozen buildings that it were occupied, all but one, occupied uh, with these small crafts business people some of whom have been there for decades. And so we um, took uh, stock of the situation and realized that uh, much of Jewelers Row is not protected on the historic register. So this goes back to what we were saying earlier. And I'm going to get to your task force question. It's a long no, way no, to no, get no, to this, it. No, I want to hear this. This is interesting. Um, and it really kind of hampered our efforts to stop this from happening because we didn't have the leverage of these buildings being protected. Uh, and like most of the city, 97% of the city is not protected, including the bulk of the buildings on Jewelers Row. Uh, it became a citywide cause celeb, uh, front page news, on the TV news, night after night. Um, and it really served to highlight what we think of as the preservation crisis that we're facing in the city right now. With a red-hot development climate, and so many of our historic buildings not protected and therefore vulnerable to demolition. 
So that was one of the main factors that led um, the Kennedy administration to propose this Historic Preservation Task Force uh, to take a look at best practices around the country, take a close look at uh, what's going on in the city, and propose some recommendations to get ahead of the problem. Um, and so that really was what the task force was all about. They met over about an 18-month period, um, released their recommendations at the beginning of this year, and uh, I'd be happy to go into what some of, some of them are. Yeah, sure. So um, for our audience, for our listening audience, because there are people outside of Philadelphia that listen to the podcast, how did the Jewelers Row situation net out? The Jewelers Row situation, um, it's, all the buildings are still standing. Okay. That's the good news. It's three years after the crisis first hit. The bad news is uh, our efforts to block the development in the courts were not successful. Uh, our last and final court appeal was dismissed uh, last year. And so it appears that the developer is moving forward on their plans. All of the tenants in those buildings have scattered. They've left. We lost a diamond cutter. We lost uh, a woman-owned jewelry repair and uh, jewelry uh, maker left to the neighborhood. Uh, several more small craftspeople were just you know, kicked out and left the neighborhood and really undermined Jewelers Row you know, right, as a destination right. for jewelry. The building's now empty. Uh, there are uh, valid demolition permits on them. So even though they're still standing, it, it really looks like their days are numbered. Um, and we're still hoping against hope that, you know, maybe uh, the developers listening to this program and uh, we'll see things differently and we'll change course. But it's very unlikely at this point uh, that that's going to happen. So, I mean, the irony of and we see this over and over again where, um, uh, you know, developers and uh, business, you know, uh, people want to move into areas that have this classic charm and character and then they want to erase it or, you know, revise it so dramatically that it takes away the initial charm that drew them to the area. Right. In fact, it's, one way to look at it is, you know, while the city was shrinking and declining and the suburbs were booming, a lot of that was happening in cornfields and beautiful rural areas where developers would uh, buy out the farm and build a housing development and name it for the farm that used to be there. And you can all think of examples of that, you know. Um, in the recent years, the recent decade or decade and a half, when the city has gotten hot again, now we're seeing the same phenomenon come into the city where uh, this Jewelers Row project, you know, the developer wants to put condos in a thriving, bustling, densely built historic neighborhood uh, near Independence Hall and Washington Square, but they're kind of destroying the neighborhood in order to do that. Uh, and we think that's just bad um, development policy, and it's bad public policy to allow it, and we're trying to uh, make the case that you know, we need to be smarter about development and direct it to vacant lots or to parking lots uh, and to uh, structures that don't have historical merit. And there are a lot of them. Right, right. So, folks, today we're talking with Paul Steinke, Executive Director of the Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia. Okay, so, Paul, um, let's go back to the Historic Task Force uh, uh, report and their recommendations. Um, can you talk about what are some of the incentives that are needed to support historic preservation? I think that was some of the findings, right? To some degree, yes. Uh, the task force did recommend a number of incentives, which are now uh, beginning to move through um, the city council approval process as bills. Um, they deal with, they mostly deal with uh, changes to the zoning code. Um, what they don't do, and what the task force really shied away from, was making recommendations for the city to directly invest in historic preservation. Um, the Kenny administration has done some of that. They did increase the budget for the City Historical Commission so they could go from five to now eight full-time people. That has enabled the Historical Commission 
to do more in terms of nominating and designating historic properties. Uh, for example, after about a 10-year hiatus, uh, the Historical Commission is now reviewing historic district nominations and has approved some of them. Uh, Wayne Junction, where Jumpstown, Jumptown, Jumpstart Germantown has a, a real foothold, is one of them. Wayne Junction is a, an eight-building historic district comprised of red brick um, turn-of-the-century industrial buildings where they made everything from pencils to, um, you know, electronic equipment. And um, so that's a new historic district. So the Kenny administration is investing uh, modestly in preservation in that way. But most of the recommendations in the task force report um, are no to low-cost recommendations as far as the city is concerned. So some examples, and this might put your listeners to sleep, but they're, they're important. Um, changes to the zoning code being proposed include uh, making, if a building is added to the historic register, um, particularly a, a church or a, an old school or a factory building, um, and there's a, a proposal to change the use of that building to another use that would preserve it. For example, turning a church into apartments mm -hmm. or turning a school into offices. Um, that change would not require a, a zoning variance to change the use. Why is that important? Because when uses like that are proposed, it can be very time-consuming and expensive to go to the zoning board and change the use. And that adds uh, time and expense to a development project and makes the viability of that uh, project a little less attractive to the developer. So what we, it's what we call as-of-right zoning, that if you propose a, ch propose a change in use for, say, a historic church that's on the historic register, it's, uh, you get that permit automatically. You don't have to go for a variance. Same with um, parking. Uh, a lot of times when there's new development or a change in use, the zoning code requires the owner to provide a certain number of off-street parking spaces. Well, if you have a historic church that was built before there even were cars, there are no off-street parking spaces. And this is a city with... Uh, a good transit system. It's for it's a walkable city in many neighborhoods. So one of the bills would relieve uh, the owner of having to provide off-street parking as part of the use change. So that's the second one. And the third one has to do with something called accessory dwelling units, which is basically a bunch of $10 words that mean uh, that a homeowner can have... Um, part of the house rented to someone else to help pay the mortgage. That's usually what it is. So take a big old sprawling Victorian house a few blocks from here in Germantown. Couple buys it, you know, it was a stretch to get the mortgage and to make the mortgage payments, but they love the house. They want to take good care of it. So they decide they want to uh, rent a room upstairs to uh, a college student or to you know, uh, a single mom and her child or whatever, and they will help uh, pay the mortgage, basically, by paying rent to the owner. In many cases, that's not legal under the current zoning code, accessory dwelling units. Uh, this bill would uh, make it legal to do so um, and would help smooth the way to uh, having uh, homeowners be able to pay the bills to take care of their historic houses. Would Airbnb fall under that? Um, no, Airbnb no? is subject to other regulations, so it wouldn't affect that. They're not really considered, it's a good question, but they're not really considered accessory dwelling units. They're considered uh, a hospitality business and treated differently under the zoning code, as they should yeah, be. Okay. Yeah, because some of these grand, um, you know, um, uh, Victorians in Mount Airy and Germantown would be great for an Airbnb concept. And some of so, them probably are, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, and those bills, there are three of them, they were introduced in June 
by Councilwoman Bass of this district and also Councilman Squilla of the first district. Uh, and so we'll be um, going to hearings on them that will be scheduled in the fall uh, once city council reconvenes next month. So, you know, I, I heard that there, and it, tell me if this is still true, that there's no citywide database or digital platform that collects and tracks and maintains info about historic properties. So that this, all that information is still primarily kept on paper. Is that true? Uh, not exactly, okay. although you, the fundamental thing you said is correct. There is no citywide inventory of historic buildings. Um, we don't even know what we have. Uh, and this makes Philadelphia somewhat uh, unique among large cities. Other big cities from Boston to Chicago to Los Angeles have undertaken citywide historic resource inventories. So they at least know what they have uh, in, you know, within their boundaries. We do not. Uh, and so a lot of times when, say, a historic church in Frankfurt gets torn down or a, uh, a former school building in Point Breeze gets torn down, there is no record of what it was. Uh, and it's lost without, kind of without a trace. Um, a citywide historic building uh, inventory is the fundamental building block to creating uh, more protections for uh, buildings and neighborhoods in the city. So one of the recommendations of the task force was to, uh, and is, to create that inventory. And to its credit, um, the city, through its planning commission, is taking the initial steps towards creating that inventory. And that does cost money. It will cost money. Uh, they've acquired the software uh, required to uh, keep the inventory, and they're beginning to put together the uh, human resources to do that. What we really need the city to do is to make uh, a financial commitment to creating that inventory. And I don't know that we're, we're there yet with okay. city government, okay. but it's something that we... Um, are talking to them about. It just seems like something that would be a natural, um, uh, you know, partnership uh, between the city and maybe a university or, you know, some other entity that would have research, research um, resources, you know, research resources, like a, a university, University of Pennsylvania, um, you know, graduate students, uh, kind of having a, a natural pipeline of young people <laughs> that would be motivated to help research and document this information. Yes. Uh, well, that's a very insightful comment. You better be careful or people are going to start calling you, a, <laughs> calling you a preservationist, Alina. Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, I think the city's attitude, and I can understand why, is uh, they can't do this alone. Right, right. That uh, there are, there's expertise in this city. You know, you mentioned the University of Pennsylvania. They have a highly regarded preservation program. Uh, Jefferson University in East Falls has one as well. Um, there are also private foundations that uh, might be persuaded to support this effort on a one-time basis just mm -hmm. so we can mm -hmm. get the inventory right, in place. Right, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I think you know, the city is um, rightfully thinking about who they can partner with, including the Preservation Alliance and other preservation advocates, um, to get this inventory done. Yeah, and just, I'm just thinking this day and age, I mean, once the platform or whatever the entity is built, the foundation, it can be primarily crowdsourced in terms of, of the information that gets funneled into it. Some because cities who tried that, Detroit made an effort at doing that a few years ago. It got a lot of publicity. Um, in the end, it was kind of a flawed approach because it was hard to enforce standards and to make sure that the data was, uh, was accurate and um, you know yeah. conformed to certain... Standards, basically. So there needs to be some vetting there to before stuff goes into the database. Right. Okay, great. So, Paul, um, there's a limited number of projects uh, your alliance can go to bat for in a given year. So can you talk about how do you choose? What's the general criteria on which projects to pursue and which projects to pass on just because it's a bandwidth issue? A lot of th that's a good point. It's true. You know, we're a staff of five full-time people, um, and so there is a limit to what we can achieve. Uh, we like to say that we, we think we punch above our weight, you know, in terms of our, our visibility and our impact, uh, but we're always frustrated that we can't do more. Uh, and we do have lots of allies and partners out there that we work with 
who expand the capacity of the overall preservation movement. It's another um, example of how, you know, we see ourselves as an alliance. You know, we don't have to do it all alone. Uh, we can support others who are trying to achieve the same goals. So um, we think about, you know, where are their threats, where we can sort of get in front of the threat and provide a measure of protection. Um, we think about, you know, what are the obvious uh, places where protections are absent, where it makes sense. And a lot of people would say, sure, that that makes sense. A uh, good example of that is um, uh, at Macy's at 13th and Market downtown. The building is on the historic register, but that beautiful grand court was not. And so we nominated the Macy's Grand Court, or I prefer to say Wanamaker's Grand well, Court. Yeah, it's like that, that Wanamaker's. That's who built it, right? <laughs> and that's what it was for most of its existence. Um, we got that designated as a historic interior. It's only the fourth historic interior in the city. Uh, the first one was City Council Chambers. The second one was the former Family Court at 18th and Vine, which has beautiful uh, 1930s murals that were created during the Franklin Roosevelt administration under the WPA. Uh, then we got Wanamaker's Grand Court designated last year. Uh, and then the fourth one we got done uh, is 30th Street Station's in interior. Again, the building was on the historic register, but the interior was not protected. And I think anybody and everybody would look at that and say, that's definitely historic and worthy of protection, so that's done. So we, we you know, gravitate towards projects that um, you know, it just makes sense to have protections in place. So we respond to threats. We uh, do things that are obvious that aren't yet protected. Uh, and then we also respond to um, information we get from the, the media or from uh, private individuals who say, oh, I just heard that so-and-so building uh, might be targeted for demolition. What can you do? And uh, as long as, you know, it's kind of early in the process, we can uh, sometimes get a nomination in for designation before uh, the threat becomes real and get it protected. So with um, going back to Jewelers Row, Row, was that a situation where, uh, you know, it had been around for so long that people just kind of assumed, yeah, it probably is protected in some way? Is it just it just wasn't on anybody's radar because it, it had been so there had been so much stability there for for decades? Right. I mean, it, it really goes for the entire city in a way, because, you know, um, after World War Two, the city went to sleep for about 50, 75 years. Um, and the threats we were dealing with as preservationists were threats born of decline and abandonment. We were trying to save buildings that had emptied out and were being vandalized and, um, you know, were having fires. I can think of uh, the Naval Home on Grace Ferry Avenue, the Divine Lorraine on North Broad Street, the Metropolitan Opera House, um, uh, the Fairmount Waterworks, you know, uh, they yeah, were these big projects and big flashy, yeah. And they became to see their decline. They became yeah. eyesores, right? And kind of symbols of Philadelphia's decline. And we were fighting back then to save them. Meanwhile, places like Jewelers Row, which were kind of you know plodding along and d doing their business day to day, uh, they weren't. We, we they weren't were really thriving. worried about them. And they were thriving. And the city didn't have development pressure. You know, we weren't building new apartments and condos and offices mm -hmm. for decades. Uh, and so we kind of fell behind uh, in, you know, protecting historic resources. Mm -hmm. And we weren't really ready as a city for uh, growth, which we've had since, I think, 2006. We weren't ready for that. And so even though we had the tools to protect buildings, um, like, we were saying 97% didn't have those protections. And so, you know, that combined with other societal trends like the decline in church going and church membership, uh, leaving a lot of our beautiful stone and brick historic church and synagogue buildings um, vulnerable. And they're like, you know, uh, 
uh, cheese to a mouse when it comes to development. They're, they're just going to go right to them because they're big lots. You can clear them away and put up, you know, a dozen townhouses, 15 townhouses, whatever. Uh, and um, that's what we've been seeing. Yet, you know, who among us wouldn't look at these historic church buildings and say, wow, we're not going to build like that again. And they're real neighborhood landmarks. Uh, and we should do everything we can to keep the congregation alive that's in there and help them to overcome their, their challenges. But in an increasing number of changes or, or cases, we're losing those congregations. Uh, and that leaves the buildings vulnerable. And so that's why we need to show the way and also incentivize the uh, adaptive reuse of those buildings, those church buildings and others, into new uses, or else we're going to lose them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it changes the, the aesthetic of the, of the neighborhood when, when those disappear and then Certainly the aluminum-clad you know, buildings go up. So can you talk about a current project that you're really excited about or one of the 2019 award winners? Because um, I know that every year uh, the Alliance has a, a very um, distinguished award ceremony to yes. recognize um, different projects. So um, one that caught my eye was the Lincoln Square uh, train ship yes, project. Mm-hmm. But if there's another one that you want to talk about? Sure. Um, our 26th annual Preservation Achievement Award ceremony was held on June 5th uh, at V on North Broad. We had over 500 people, including several members of city council who came which always excites us because we think, oh, we'll turn them into preservationists now, you know. But they stayed, and they asked, they stayed afterwards and talked to people and asked questions. Um, but, yeah, so uh, we did honor the Lincoln Square train shed rehabilitation um, and addition. The addition is a new apartment building. Uh, and that was a neat project because the train shed at Broad in Washington was built in 1876. Uh, it was built on the, near the site where uh, the body of uh, President Lincoln passed through on his way to Washington for his funeral, and tens of thousands of Philadelphians came out to pay their respects. Uh, so about a decade later, this train shed was built, uh, and it survived to the present day, but it was underutilized and deteriorating when a developer acquired it, restored it beautifully using federal historic rehabilitation tax credits, uh, which are one of the few incentives out there, public incentives for preservation, turned it into a grocery store that opened this year. Uh, It's called Sprouts. Um, And if you haven't been there and you need to buy some meats or produce, I encourage you to stop by just to see the building because it's a spectacular job. What neighborhood is this considered? It's um, South Philadelphia, right at the corner of Broad and Washington. I guess you'd call it the corner of Point Breeze, um, but it really isn't Point Breeze. It's like, you know, Avenue of the Arts, South Broad at Washington, the the gateway to the Avenue of the Arts, Um, right across from the High School for the Creative and Performing Arts, which itself was one of those uh, vacant and crumbling landmarks Uh, on Broad Street for a very long time. And then about 20 years ago, it was incorporated into CAPA, the High School for the Creative and Performing Arts, and is now a source of pride for that neighborhood. I guess you'd call that Hawthorne, uh, as opposed to a source of, um, or a symbol of decline. Another one that I want to mention that I think is very instructive, a project that we honored at our awards this year, is the uh, Ridge Avenue Historic District that runs uh, mostly in the Roxboro section. And that's an area where over the past uh, eight, ten years, there were a number of older buildings on Ridge Avenue that were being targeted for demolition to build things like fast food restaurants, drive through banks, muffler shops, you know, things like that. And there are eight civic associations that operate in the vicinity of Ridge Avenue. And they went to uh, their city council person, Councilman Curtis Jones, and said, Councilman, uh, this is really upsetting to us. Ridge Avenue is a beautiful uh, historic road lined with these uh, historic buildings. 
and we're losing them. There are no protections. And to his credit, Councilman Jones listened, and he enacted a moratorium on demolition for one year. And during that one year, the Historical Commission staff, uh, once again a city agency, went out and surveyed the Ridge Avenue corridor and identified almost 200 buildings that are worthy of protection and proposed the Ridge Avenue Historic District. And it was approved in uh, the fall of last year. Uh, And that means that there are about more than twice that many buildings in the district. All the rest of them are still fair game for redevelopment if, if someone wants to do it. But these uh, 200 or so properties are now protected on the historic register. And that was a real triumph of community action combined with uh, a receptive city council person who listened to his constituents and took action. And then much credit to historical commission staff for getting out there and doing the nomination. And one of my favorite stories in that whole saga was one day... Councilman Jones walked the entire corridor five miles with these different community groups, uh, and he says how much it opened his eyes. You know, I'm sure he had driven it dozens, if not hundreds of times, but when you walk a neighborhood uh, and you take it in slowly, you see things you don't see otherwise. And it, it really kind of increased Councilman Jones' appreciation for the historic archi- architecture of that part of his district. That's great. That's great. So, Paul, um, how can people get involved in um, the Preservation Alliance's initiatives, or how can people get more educated about um, historic architecture in the city of Philadelphia? There are a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you know, we're a membership organization, and I'm always uh, uh, tickled when we get a new member. Uh, And you can join on our website, which is preservationalliance.com. Memberships start at $25 a year, uh, and of course there's no limit, right? Um, so uh, we encourage people to become a member, and uh, what that does is it gives you discounts on all of our programming. Uh, one element of our programming uh, that really engages with the public is our walking tour program. Uh, we offer walking tours Every weekend, one on Saturday, one on Sunday, we offer them uh, at least one a week during the warm weather season. This weekend, we have a tour of the Bella Vista neighborhood in South Philadelphia. I think that's on Sunday. Uh, All the information's on our website. And they're led by a team of volunteer tour guides who have been trained in architecture and uh, neighborhood history. Uh, And it's a great way to learn the history of a part of the city or a neighborhood that uh, you don't know much about. Or even if you do think you Mm -hmm. know a lot Mm -hmm. about it. Right. um, So that's one way. Another way is we do a quarterly series of uh, breakfast panel discussions on issues related to historic preservation. We have one coming up on September 20th uh, about urban archaeology and about uh, what is below our feet in terms of uh, remnants of previous occupants and previous buildings of our city. Uh, And information on that is available on our website. And finally, um, another thing that comes to mind is in the spring, we do a 10-part lecture series on historic preservation, architecture, planning, archaeology in the city, Um, It takes place at uh, the Independence Visitors Center, thanks to the generosity of the National Park Service and Independence National Historical Park, which donated their auditorium. And we have a series of speakers over uh, five weeks uh, that talk about all these different issues related to preservation, architecture, planning, and so forth. Great. So anybody who becomes a member um, can get all that information? Yes. Uh, it's open to non-members as well, okay. but of course you get um, discounted admission if you're a member. Okay, great. And for people that are living in neighborhoods and maybe there's, you know, there's a, a building on their block that they know, or they kind of, their gut's telling them, oh man, this should really be preserved. How would you recommend 
just a you know regular resident in any neighborhood in Philadelphia go about starting the process? Should they go directly to their council person? Should they come to – how would you recommend that they just get the ball rolling? Um, we receive – we take calls all the time from neighbors who are interested in doing just that. Uh, and we uh, talk them through the process. We go out to neighborhoods. We were just in a neighborhood last night, Overbrook Farms, uh, which is near St. Joe's University, a beautiful historic yeah. neighborhood built in the first quarter of the 20th century, a little bit late 19th century, that's now being considered to become a local historic district and answer questions of neighbors, uh, handed out cards, business cards. So you can call us. Uh, you can call uh, historical commission staff. Um, they're 215-686-7660. It's a public agency. They work for you, the citizens. Uh, they'll take your questions as well. They're very knowledgeable and very helpful. Uh, we interact with them a lot as well. And I'd recommend uh, going on our website, preservationalliance.com. There is uh, a whole list of resources, uh, guides and examples of nominations, uh, position papers, um, examples of great preservation projects. You can learn a lot just by spending a few minutes on our website, too. Okay, that's great. So, folks, today we've been talking with Paul Steinke, Executive Director of the Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's You're been welcome. great having you. Thanks for the opportunity. And so, folks, that's it for this episode of the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show. Remember, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or you can visit the Jumpstart Germantown website at jumpstartgermantown.com, where we have a full uh, backlog of episodes. So thanks for listening, and I'll be back again next week with another great interview. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.